models look a specific way? Like, what is it? Even when you're a plus size in the modeling industry, do you still have to have specific features? What are we praising and who is unseen? You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky, and this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a more knowledgeable life, a happy life. And today, guest hosting with me, fourth time guest host, is Senior Director of Community Impact for California Yimby, Constantine Hatcher. Hello. Welcome back to Good Is In The Details. I love being back. (laughs) And today is a special day for you. It is. Today is Big 50. Today is your birthday. Thank you for recording this intro with me on your 50th birthday. I know. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, well, you know, well, it feels good to be appreciated. <laughs> we have, well, one of the things I love about podcasting is that I get to read incredible works and then reach out to the authors. And I have just been in love with this collection of essays for brown girls with sharp edges and tender hearts. And the author is also the founder of Latina Rebels. She has appeared on NPR, Teen Vogue, Cosmopolitan, and she's been invited to the Obama White House in 2016. And now she's on Good is in the details, Prisca Rodriguez. So you've been a guest host on this. What did you get out of this interview? I thought that she brought like just this tremendous perspective that is underrepresented and bringing in such a, a real, just true um, and raw way, really allowing um, herself to be vulnerable through the work that it just it was really powerful. And, yes. just, and that's for me, how I felt about it. I can imagine that others that might be inspired, people that come from similar backgrounds will be inspired and motivated and, you know, just happy that someone is giving them voice, their experience voice. I think that's important. Yeah. I mean, on so many levels, I think just her experience of, you know, the hurdles with publication and with writing, and then also being the voice and essentially opening up a market, a whole new market for this voice is just incredible. It, w- it was such a joy. It was such a joy to have her on the pod. Yeah. And it, like the market was there and she believed in herself and said, hey, I, I think this is, well, I probably shouldn't give away too much. But <laughs> but just the fact that she, you know, said, hey, I'm going to um, I believe in myself and I know what's out there. I know there are people like me out there that need to hear this and I want to bet on myself and have the courage to do so. And to see that, it, yeah, like you said, now creating a new market, at least in the eyes of the people that were pulling all the strings. Something that I love that I think I mentioned in the interview is that her essays remind me of this existential theme that's in Camus. This idea of saying yes to existence can mean also saying no. It's a yes and a no. So she's saying yes to her authenticity, to her observations, to her talent, and resisting the cultural ideology that wants to tell her that she's not supposed to be doing that. So this is, a, yeah, just a fantastic collection of essays for anybody to enjoy. But her target audience is for young women of color. So I definitely recommend that. I'll link the book in the show notes. Okay. And now let's have our conversation with Priska about For Brown Girls with Sharp Edges and Tender Hearts. Enjoy. There's this quote by Pearl Cleage that says, I'm writing, writing, writing for my life. And I think that's what ended up happening for me. I graduated. I moved back home. And so I was single in Miami. Nobody wanted to hire me because I was overqualified in terms of a degree, but underqualified because of work experience because I had been in school for years. I also had visible tattoos. I wasn't 
palatable in the ways that people wanted me to be. And so the only job I could get was at Neiman Marcus, the outlet store. I felt stuck. I felt like, did I mess up? Did all the decisions that I made, all the divesting from systems that I did, is that my demise? (laughs) And so I started not writing. I started on Instagram doing captions and pictures of myself just to remind myself, like little me, because my internal dialogue to current me was very mean. It was very, (laughs) you're never going to get out of this. This is the end. (laughs) But I could be nice to a picture of me at five years old. I started writing these love letters to me at a younger self. And from Instagram captions, the Huffington Post reached out this started in May 2015. In August, the Huffington Post Latino Voices editor, Tanisha Ramirez, DM'd me on Facebook. And she was like, you're a wonderful writer. I would love for you to write for us. And I was like, troll. <laughs> there's no there's no way. <laughs> there's absolutely no way that somebody believes in me. So this has to be a lie. Because <laughs> I, I even told her, I was like, I'm not a writer, though. And she's like, you're absolutely a writer and you're a beautiful writer. And so you can actually go to Huffington Post. If you type my name and you go to Huffington Post, you can see the first thing I wrote was like six lines. It was like a poem, basically, because I didn't I was so stifled and I was so silenced. And I was told in academia, um, lived experiences are crucial for people of color, but not you, though. You need to write like an academic. (laughs) So you can't talk about your experiences. Give me the citations. Where'd you get that from? Strip yourself out of this paper. And so I didn't know how to write. I didn't know how to type into that. And I had to learn through writing. And in November of that year was the Dear Brown Girl piece that's in the beginning of the book. I wrote that and that went viral. By January of the next year, I was writing full time. So it happened quickly. It happened against my will in some very significant ways. I think it took almost two years for me to finally tell Tanisha at the Huffington Post. I was like, I think I'm a writer. (laughs) But it took it took a lot. And it's still I mean, my book, uh, my agent, my literary agent reached out to me on direct message on Twitter after a piece that I wrote about it's similar to the volunteerism piece that's in the book, but that went viral in white spaces. And my agent found it. He messaged me on Twitter and I thought he was a troll also. I thought that was a lie because I, I still have the piece. He was like, Miss Dorcas, because of course he doesn't know my name. He just sees my Twitter handle, which is Priska Dorcas. <laughs> and he's like, I love to help you write a book. And I thought it was a, like, what? Okay. And so it took me two years to write my book proposal because I dragged my feet about it. I was like, this isn't real. I don't know why you think I can write a book. I don't know why you think that I know how to write a book. (laughs) Is there any part of you that wants to go back to the people who said that you couldn't write and show them, (laughs) show them your work? All the time. All the time. Hell yeah. Especially the TA who suggested I write my papers in Spanish because she assumed I was going to be a better writer in Spanish. I've seen her once out and about and I just wanted to be like, do you remember me? <laughs> but Microaggression much? Yeah, I know it won't end well for me. I'll, I'll still be viewed as the aggressive one in that dynamic. So I don't do anything. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's all kind of happened to me. <laughs> I haven't really sought this career and now that i'm here i'm like oh i think it's time to fuck shit up here 
You know, one of the powerful themes throughout the book that really resonated with me is that journey that BIPOC folks have to undertake, twisting themselves out of shape, contorting so that they fit in to what others' perceptions of who they should be, to be accepted, to be able to enjoy the benefits of, you know, in mainstream society and how difficult that is, that feeling of not good enough, that kind of imposter syndrome. What would you advise or say to that brown girl who is coming of age and embarking on their own journey of self-acceptance? They may have, you know, busted their ass, got their scholarship, got their degree, maybe got their graduate degree. They walk into the door and all of a sudden it's, "Mm, no, sorry, you're not good enough. And you're not good enough, not because of you don't have the talent or you don't have the achievements, but because of who you are, how you exist in the world, too black, too brown, too ethnic. What might you say to them? It's heartbreaking. (laughs) I think people just have different monsters they're battling too. And at least for me, my distance and the fact that my parents weren't financially able to support me meant that I had a certain amount of freedom that I kind of was like, whatever I did, they couldn't punish me, gave me a lot of freedom to be like, fuck all this. I was able to risk everything because the only person technically that I was going to hurt was myself if everything backfired. And in some ways it it did backfire. (laughs) And I was the only person that sort of faced the consequences of me divesting from systems. But I would say, try. (laughs) I got caught up in the dance of do what you're told, believe the myth of meritocracy, dress better, make them believe that you belong. I, I got caught up in the dance. And when I realized that it didn't matter what I was doing, that's when I divested. And I think that If I would have done it earlier, I would have been so much more prepared for everything that happened. (laughs) If I had the wherewithal and the information. And that's the thing, though. Do you have the information? Do you have access to that kind of conversation? Do you have a support system that's pushing you more as you're having these questions within yourself? All that's like, I think you need all that to do this fully. I don't know if it applies to everyone, but I would say to people who are in these systems and having to operate within them, try to, as much as being and conforming Mm -hmm. can on paper reward you in some ways. Uh, I was just reading this Kimberly Crenshaw quote, like becoming white does give you some sort of autonomy as opposed to being an object, like attempting to acquiesce to whiteness does give you some sort of power or some sort of sense of power. And I think, yeah, it does and it can, but don't get caught up in it because it's never yours and it's always conditional. Step away from it as much as possible and don't let it have the hold that it wants to have on you. Could you explain what you mean by whiteness, white standards of beauty? Because if somebody is stuck in the narrative of whiteness equaling norm, then they won't even realize that it is actually a system. They'll just think that is the way things are. So what are some things that you noticed about white spaces or white standards of beauty that are not actually norm, they're cultural and conditioned? I think it's so ingrained that if you're not questioning it, you probably should. So beauty pageants, even like the Miss Universe, what do all the women from all, why do they all happen to look alike? (laughs) 
even if their skin tones are different, what is it that we have admired and revered about beauty that it seems to transcend race? And it's a smallness, body and facial features. It is taking up as less, we like women who take up as less space as possible with their mouths and with their bodies. So like the thinness, the small features, the thing that we think of like universally beautiful, what does that look like? And why does that not look like your grandmother? Why does that not look like a lot of your ancestors? And like that, that is like how we begin to critically think back who have been my influences. Why do my Barbies all look this way? Why do all the girls in the magazine, why do all the (laughs) models look a specific way? Like, what is it? Even when you're a plus size in the modeling industry, do you still have to have specific features? What are we praising and who is unseen? What would be an example of something you had to claim for your own sanity and sense of self? There were a few things, but a a really powerful thing for me was dress. In grad school, there isn't a dress code on paper and people could be subversive, but there was a dress code (laughs) and depends on your field too, but there is a more mutedness that had to exist. I remember my professor saying, don't wear makeup if you want to be taken seriously. Like things like that. You're like, what second wave shit did you get that from? (laughs) Like who and why and when? (laughs) And, and like, a renowned, like this woman lives in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in Nashville, Tennessee. It is a renowned scholar whose travels across the US. She's a big pull for my program. And still she was like, don't be too feminine. Wear that navy and that black. <laughs> Stay as invisible as possible to be taken seriously. I had really invested myself in that. And I thought that people would think I was good and I could fit in and to be asked well, show me your student ID or to be asked, oh, do you have a gun? Things like that that were really shocking because I was like, wait, but I I put on the uniform. I thought I looked like y'all. I thought I did it. And to have that happen was like the first step for me to be like, oh, fuck it. Just wear what you want then. (laughs) Show up in that leather mini skirt to class and they're going to treat you the same way they were treating you anyways. I really love your chapter on the male gaze and I am being completely serious. Every time I teach it to my philosophy of sex and love class, it's impossible for me to talk about the end of that essay without getting goosebumps, no matter how many times I've read it and talked about it. I think something that might is a surprise for some people is that your out in order to get your freedom was through marriage. Yeah. Can you talk briefly about like how, how that works? <laughs> and then how also were you able to step out of that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's generational. I grew up hearing my mom talk about her very abusive family dynamic and her very abusive brother and saying she got married at 19 because she wanted to get away. And that and it was very matter a fact, you know, it wasn't something she told us as a warning or as don't do what I did. It was like, and I got out. Mm. And so (laughs) when I was thinking of getting out, I didn't think that the same would be mandatory for me. 
And so to discover that for me to want to go to grad school meant that I needed to get married, for me to want to leave that house meant that I needed to get married. That was a huge shock, a probably bigger shock than it should have been because it had been scripted. It had been laid out for me. <laughs> but to have my mom say, you don't leave this house until you get married, it was like, all right, then I got to find a man wow. who's going to want to marry me and, and quick because I want to get out of here as soon as possible because it was. And when my little sister wanted to move out, the same was said to her. And I was the only one being like, no, get get out. Do not marry that boyfriend you have right now, <laughs> please, for the love of God. <laughs> and so it took me supporting her, giving her my furniture that was still in their garage for her because they were like, you can't take anything. This is all our stuff. They were like putting literal blocks for her, even though financially she could do that. They were creating blocks for her to leave. But she was the first out of all three of us, the only one who left without getting married. Wow. It's such, I mean, I really yeah. hope it's just sometimes I hear narratives today where people are anti-feminist and saying feminists have destroyed the family. But the thing is that for a long time, marriage was really based on income and need. And what has happened is that because women are self-sufficient and men are too, it turns out they can do their own laundry, that that economic need <laughs> isn't there. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. That economic need isn't there, which means that people can get into relationships based on attraction and mutual interests. You know, you're not just with somebody because they are a paycheck. They're a source of income for life. But we're still hearing your story. I mean, there's still um, this hold that in order for a woman to have significance, she has to be attached to a man. It's yeah. like framework that women's value is through the prism of where their connection is with man. Yes. Like that bullshit. Excuse me. Yeah. Well, that's, I think I'm putting explicit on this. But yeah. this is another story of resilience and triumph. How is it that you're in that scenario? You're now married, but you also know that that is not the key to your voice and to your significance. So how do you make the transition from you're in this structure, you're in this contract, if you will, but it's not going to define you. And you're going to decide that it will not be the defining point for you. I think as I started reading Bell Hooks and Audrey Lorde, <laughs> it really shifted my script. Even just having conversations, like my relationship or my experiences with racism within my community, because Latines, we come in all races <laughs> and you still experience a lot of the way that I look, that I look particularly indigenous is something that's looked down on in my community. I had those experiences in Latine spaces in Miami, but to experience um, racism from white people specifically and the power that comes with that racism, the system that supports that racism was daunting enough that my lens was changing. Like I was having very different experiences to paste the text too. Like I wasn't just having these theory conversations in classrooms. I was going home. I was going to Whole Foods. I was having these experiences with white people all the time. <laughs> and so that's when a lot of me started to get angry. And because I didn't know where to put that anger, I was like, here's this man that I'm married to because I had to. And fuck that. I don't want to be married to him either. Like I just was really tuning in, finding the anger and finding the power to be angry because for women to be angry, like for us to even say we're angry, I think takes a lot of... <laughs> 
uh, privilege. <laughs> We're not allowed to be angry, I think. We're not allowed to express anger. Specifically, my very church context, I think we're not allowed to express anger. And so to have access to that anger and to have access to, okay, what do I do with it now? The person that felt the most immediate was this person that I got married to because of obligation, because I was making everyone else happy. And so it was the first tie that I broke. And it was a riskiest because in terms of family respect, in terms of what my disappointing my parents, I felt that consequence immediately. Like they stopped talking to me. I mean, I stopped talking to them. I changed my phone number. I changed the address. I didn't tell them where I was. And the distance gave me access to cut them off. But the words and the things that they said to me to try to keep me in that marriage, we're all, I mean, we have triggers because oftentimes our parents gave them to us. Finding all that and and having to fight my own voices are like you're doing something wrong and the world is scary now and something scary is about to happen to you and you are in danger all those felt really real and then like i was showed that it is real <laughs> if you read that chapter and so to not run back was the fight that i had within me for a while wow that's just such a um it's just interesting how these systems are so set up that we like even though we even when we recognize the system, it's so hard to just break away from it because so much is predicated on that. Right? Family. Yeah. Your family every, and... every aspect of life. Just that folks that maybe may not understand that terminology. When you say divestive systems, so you've used that term a couple of times. Could you just speak to kind of what you mean by that and what does that look like? And how would that apply to to someone maybe that also might work within the system and how do they navigate that piece? Yeah, I think our whole schooling and our whole socializing is investment in the systems. I think even our churches support that in a lot of significant ways, which is something I really can't wait to get into in one of my books. But yeah, it's just the the way we dress, <laughs> who even the normalization of heterosexuality. It's the way we assume my little girl has a little boyfriend. They haven't said anything. It's it's little little things that that are our everyday things that are so normal <laughs> that support these systems. And whether it's conscious or not, we are invested in these systems if we're not dismantling them. Mm-hmm. And so when I say divesting is is the opposite of that is saying, oh, I see what's happening mm-hmm. and I'm going to actively not just assume someone's gender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to actively not acquiesce to the most powerful person in an academic classroom because I'm supposed to. I'm going to actively treat people like they're human beings, even if I was told that there's value in people based on how much they make. So it's changing scripts that we think are just default. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Because one of the things I was wondering, like, say your work, say you work in corporate America or you work in, even as like working in a nonprofit, but your focus is, you know, like change from inside versus like, you know, the change from outside, which I think you need both, right? You need people working the inside and you need people pushing from the outside to make Make sure the people that are on the inside just keep keep vigilant, right? And yeah. But I was wondering, can you have both? Can you actively work to divest in the systems while still working to change from within the system? <sighs> uh, <laughs> um, maybe. Uh, well, it's hard because you're asking a person who's right. 
actively not been in those systems. But I am in a system that is like publishing is very much (laughs) a system of power and control that promotes certain voices that keeps a lot of marginalized voices out. Like statistically, we know which houses have a reputation of not publishing anyone who's not white. (laughs) So I'll say that what I'm doing now is what I did for the first few years in my program, which is like, I'm going to pay attention a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm going to learn this system right. of figure out why you're saying what you're saying, why you're not saying what you're saying. And ultimately, the goal is to dismantle and provide more opportunities for people to have a seat at the table. Right. If I'm staying within this, right, if I'm staying within publishing, I am in the gathering information stage. I am in the learning people's titles and what they mean and why it means things. And it's so much new information, so much new information that I didn't know because it's so exclusive and it's so elite and they keep information to themselves on purpose. So yeah, I'm in the gathering information stage so that I can, with a backbone, say the things that I want to say. So I would say if you are in systems, gather, gather all the information that you need to really take it down. Love it. Love that. Love that. I always think of, of it as like my experience. And we, we did a podcast, of, oh gosh, maybe a year or so ago, just talking about like letting my, it was like literally like letting my blackness out being where I could get to the point where I could feel comfortable being my whole self in any venue. Right. And just similar to your, right. You feel like you have to be smaller. You can't be too black. You can't be, I mean, like, I'm growing my hair out for the first time in 20 years because I'm like, I always like having long hair. Now I feel like I'm in a position where I can do that and it's not going to limit what I, the, the change that I can make, right? But I always consider myself, yeah. even though I'm in the system, like, I'm by the back door. Come on, y'all, get in, let's go. I'm hold that baby open. Come on, let's go. Let's get in here. Um, yeah. So it's, it, I, that, that just really resonated with me in terms of thinking about how you can, even if you're on the inside, not even that it's how you can't do it, but it's almost your responsibility to make yeah. sure that you are actively engaging and making sure that you're breaking down places. And so I, anyway, that's, I just really resonate with Well, that's what I wanted to ask next um, about Priska, about your work, because I think that the collection of essays in a way from what I've gathered from my students read it, that there's something healing and exciting about seeing themselves in your work. That's what I think is also beautiful about your essays. I mean, like I said, obviously I'm I'm a white woman, I'm of Eastern European descent. There are universal themes about this desire for tapping in and honoring yourself, even if that means resisting something that like a cultural structure that's pushing you. So there's these things that you can tap into on a universal nature, but things that are also giving me access to your experience. Like just when you were talking about dating again and going out on dates, and I think you said you were eating a French fries and a man was like, you look spicy or like you'd be really hot. <laughs> and you were just like, I am trying to eat a French fry here. Yeah. <laughs> that's what yeah. I'm trying to do. So there's a part of me that's like, it's comical and ridiculous and the absurdity of mm-hmm. it. And I think that for me, it resonated with me because a lot of women talk about how difficult it is for dating because of patriarchal structure. But then by reading your work, I have access to the extra layer of ethnicity and how that complicates the issue. And so I'm very grateful for you giving that lens. Now that you've published this, what is some of the other work that you do? Like what Constantine was saying is like opening the door for other people. Like what do you think that this book is doing and your other work for young people? 
a big thing is that I call myself a storyteller. Even on my website, I lead that I'm a storyteller. And my publisher, my agent, they all want to be like, no, say you're an author because you're an author now. <laughs> and I'm just like, why? And 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 I know why, because there's prestige <laughs> in being an author and calling myself an author, a storyteller. Anyone, anyone can do that. And we don't want anyone to think they can do what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I, I dig my heels. I'm like, no, but I'm a storyteller. <laughs> And my book doing well, when it, when I finished, I don't think anybody expected it to do well. I think they had an idea of what I was going to write. I don't think they thought it was going to be this. And they said so. <laughs> and that it's done well. They've had to do a few printings of it. Now I have friends who are pitching their books to publishers and sending their proposals out. And I'm a book they're citing. Because I've created, they've said that there wasn't a genre for my book. Mm. And so I created a new genre for people like us <laughs> to exist in our first person experiences and for them to know that there's an audience. Because my book has sold over 50,000 copies. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how big this audience was going to be. So now that they know that there is actual money, because that's what publishers are thinking, numbers and money. And so they're seeing real money and real numbers. I think it's creating opportunities for other authors similar to myself, other storytellers similar to myself to have a place to be like, no, there's a foothold here and you're just missing out on this whole other customer base. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's one way that I'm like, let's go. <laughs> if right. I'm writing books that you can't put in a genre, better for me <laughs> because it's creating new possibilities for people. So my next book, I have an illustrator that I wanted to work with. Usually in publishing, they have their network. Uh, publishing is very white and very actually white female in terms of editors, in terms of marketing, publicity. I'm in meetings often with like six, seven white women. Their Rolodex of artists, once you're in a publisher, they have a Rolodex of artists who do covers, who do art within it. If you're not the one doing it, it's mostly white women too. And so I was like, okay, I want a book that has illustrations, but I'm bringing in the illustrator. Mm -hmm. And that's who I, and so I proposed the book with an illustrator who's a single mother who lives in, the, in a border town and who's just starting to really make a living as an artist. And I'm like, no, I want her stuff and her name on the book. And I want it. I want people to know who she is. I don't want your your random artist. <laughs> and asking, like, even when I got my book advance, I was like, I want to pay her a wage that's fair <laughs> and that's competitive. She's an artist that can be in galleries and she, her price should reflect that. And not only that, but I had to go and provide childcare for her to do the illustrations because she's a single mother and couldn't focus. Her baby was nine months old and she wasn't turning in. And so letting the publisher know, like, if you are investing in marginalized people who are also investing and marginalized people, your advance needs to match that. Mm -hmm. And I had to put in money, fly there, take care of her baby <laughs> where the illustration had come to life. But making those adjustments, like I'm not in publishing and so now I'm above things. No, I'm here to create opportunities for other people who will then create opportunities for other people. And she's going to do my cover. They don't work with people outside of their departments to do covers. So now she has in her resume that she's done a book cover that's going to be printed <laughs> all over the US and in Spanish too. So yeah, it's just pushing and and not asking, but just being like, this is what I want. If you want me, you're going to have to bring another person along. How hard was that fight to get that? Uh, so because my book has done well, and I know my book has done well, 
I think my agents were even because I was like, I said, I don't want anything less than $150,000 for my second book as an advance. And my agents were like, uh, we can match your first book, which is like 75K. I'm pretty sure we can get an editor to want that. And I was like, no, I don't want I don't want that. I want more. And they were like, okay. <laughs> and then they went to have these conversations. The publishers know my book is doing well. <laughs> So they just said yes immediately. And then I was like, no, actually add an extra 50K. Good for you. Yeah. And they were like, wait, we don't, we got what you wanted. Don't do more. And I was like, no, that's what I want now. (laughs) Yesterday's price is not today's price. (laughs) Yes. And I was like, negotiate like a mediocre white man for his salary. (laughs) Negotiate and get what you want. And I got it. And so... The fact that I've stayed informed, that I'm watching, that I know numbers matter, that I know that I'm I'm tapping into an audience that they haven't had access to, this particular publisher hasn't had access to before. I was like, no, I, I get to ask what I want. And they gave it to me and they didn't even flinch. That's right. I want to wrap, or wait, is there a question you really no, want? No, I oh, just, okay. I, I love that. I mean, when, just, just so, so many things there. One of the things we really hear about it, the, the conversation out in the last maybe two to four years is how women should not take less than, and like oh, yeah. in terms of being around negotiating and making sure that they're actually negotiating their worth and how oftentimes societal pressures make women feel like they can't negotiate. They just have to be happy. Thank you. And I, which yeah. also the same thing with like, oh yeah, thank you. Thank you, sir, for letting me get this thing, you know, and being thankful for that. But saying, no, actually, this is my worth and you're going to pay me my worth. And this is what I'm bringing to you and understanding that and knowing that. So I just think, you know, a lot of young women coming up and especially, you know, women of color, like, hey, I can actually know my worth and it's okay to say that and it's okay to fight. So I I just appreciate that. And and hearing that actually, they were like, okay, yeah, you're right. (laughs) I'm so glad that you said that because I'm thinking about my students now who will be listening to this and I'm so glad that you're telling that story so that they can feel empowered to go ahead and say, no, this is what I'm worth. This is what I want. That's awesome. What is something that you would hope that let's say men readers get out of your book? Um, I mean, honestly, <laughs> they weren't on my radar when I wrote it because the the minute that a man came on my radar, like my dad or my brother, it messed with my writing <clears throat> because I have been so socialized to protect, to not be too harsh because I know it's going to tap into something that the, the fear of male retribution has kept me silent that I couldn't think about a male reader at all when I was writing it. The minute that I did, like my toxic masculinity chapter, where I'm really critical of my dad and my brother, I would do select all, delete. I did that three times to the whole chapter. Wow. I was like, it's messing with me. I need to stop thinking about them. <laughs> I need sure. to stop trying to protect them or make it soft and make them be okay with it. It had to be like a really concerted effort to be like, don't think about the male reader because you're not going to write the book that needs to be written. It's like kind of, this ain't for you. You can show up and and learn from it, but ain't. Yeah, because the minute it becomes for you, it changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I loved about your work. From from an existentialist lens in Camus' work, he talked about affirming existence can sing it can be a yes and it's a no at the same time and that's what i was getting out of your work is that in affirming your existence you're saying no to the way people are saying you ought to be Mm -hmm. and it's a really beautiful 
I'm just so glad that I picked it up. I'm so glad that you said yes to this interview. I'm so happy <laughs> to have met you. I'm such a fangirl. You have no idea. No, I can't thank wait to you. Tell my students, I got to talk to you. I'm so excited. And, and I think it's like it's so exciting just to see like voices, right? New yes. voices come into the space voices, and like yes. claim. Claim the space. Claim the space for themselves, though, right? Like, this is who, like, I'm defining who I am. You don't get to define me. And I really thought that the book powerfully does that in in a way that's really accessible. Um, So, yeah, I really appreciate that. It'll definitely be like, my daughter, like, as soon as she's ready. I got this. Um, yes. But um and and like pointing out the challenges of that existence too, right? It, you were so vulnerable and like opening up your story, right? And sharing that. Oh, what were we doing last course at the last question I did. Go no, question. go oh, ahead, no. go for it. How I'm sorry. How good. <laughs> the pressure, I can't take it. No, okay, so how hard was that? I mean, you talked touching a little bit when you're talking about like when you're doing the chapter about toxic masculinity and like how you delete it, right? But like how hard was that just to open up, open yourself up and be that vulnerable to say, this is my true, my authentic story? I am going to say how hard it is, but I think I highly recommend the audiobook version because I did it myself. You could tell how hard it is as I'm reading it. Mm. I was in eight hour days in a studio for three days and I couldn't stop sobbing because I wrote things down that I had never said out loud. And so you could see me struggling to say those things out loud to make them real, (laughs) even though they are real, but to make my consciousness of it palatable (laughs) was a lot. It's so much so that the producer was like, um, we did so many takes and he was like, you know what? We're going to fix it. No, he did no such thing. (laughs) He sold me out because I, you, you hear me crying in the audio book. And so it was really hard. It still is really hard to do readings I think there's so much around secrets. I'm doing my next book is about women also. And that's kind of the gist of it is the secrets that we're taught to keep and who we're taught to protect in those secrets as women, as women of color, as working class women. I think when you take that veil off, when you say the thing, for me, what it's resulted in is I've developed a lot of autoimmune responses. Nobody can figure out what it is, but I have rashes in my arms. <laughs> I sometimes can't breathe. It feels like something suffocating me, but it feels biological. It doesn't feel anxiety related, but I've gotten scans. I've gotten, people are trying to figure out actively what's happening and nobody can figure out what's happening except that it's an autoimmune response to something that I'm doing. And that's something that I'm doing is that I'm saying things that I'm not supposed to say. <laughs> and so it is hard, and but I'm hoping that as I continue to say it, it's creating new neural pathways in my brain where that is the new normal, where we can say these things out loud in yeah. public, not just with your friends in private, but in a stage <laughs> right. in front of hundreds of people. But it is hard. I try to say as much in the book, like none of it in the book it doesn't have like these pretty bows at the end it's kind of like it's terrible out there but there's more chance of us being okay in large numbers absolutely thank you Prisca thank you I want everyone to buy your book everyone to read your book I'm really excited about it thank you so much this has been this is a great conversation I could go I could probably as you can tell I have about three four more questions no I'm joking (laughs) 
Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. And this episode is sponsored by avonmoreinc.com. If you play bridge or if any of your friends play bridge, you got to go to avonmoreinc.com. Let them know that Good is in the Details sent you. I'll link them in the show notes. And remember, they have everything for your bridge party. Cards, coasters, napkins, anything you need. We're on Instagram, Good is in the Details pod. Take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us. You can also follow us on Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. Got a new book up there for our book club. We're on Facebook, good is in the details pod. Until next time, bye.